This is the Ready for Baby podcast, a podcast about pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and beyond for new and expecting parents. I'm Gigi, a doula, newborn care specialist, and lactation educator. My goal is to streamline the newborn learning curve and empower parents. If you're interested in pumping to feed your baby, this episode is for you. My guest and I discuss misconceptions about pumping, when and how often people should pump, and dealing with a side effect of pumping, engorgement. I know pumping can be such a confusing topic and pumping parents are told to start when they're pregnant or have intense power pumping schedules. It can be very overwhelming. But in reality, not everyone even needs to pump. And if you're pumping, a lactation consultant like my guest can be a great resource. Today, you'll hear my conversation with Victoria, founder of All Bodies Nurture. Victoria is an international board-certified lactation consultant. She was inspired to follow this career path after her own struggles with feeding. Victoria founded All Bodies Nurture because she believes everyone deserves to feel safe receiving care. She's passionate about supporting clients' goals by incorporating their beliefs, family traditions, and cultural practices. Enjoy this episode. Hi, Victoria. How are you? Well, thanks. How are you, Gigi? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to talk about pumping, a very, very important and confusing topic. It is. Actually, this is a huge topic that I don't remember being so popular when I was breastfeeding my kids 10 years ago, but it seems that our culture in breastfeeding, chest feeding, and body feeding has changed, and now a lot of people are really focused on pumping, so I'm glad that we're covering this tonight. Yes, it is a lot more accessible, a lot more popular now than it was before. So it's interesting. So what led you to become an IBCLC? That's a pretty big question. My whole life view changed um, the, when I was pregnant with my first son and I asked my OBGYN if I could take some cold medicine. And he said, well, you probably can. It's probably safe. But just when he started using the word probably just amazed me. And I realized that my whole life was about to change. But I think the pivotal point for me was after my son was born, I'm sitting in the hospital and the nurses kept taking my baby from me, wrapping him up really tightly in a swaddle and putting him in the bassinet. And I kept thinking, what is he doing over there? Can't I hold him? And um, my lactation consultant came in um, for the first time. And I said, you know, neither of us can really sleep when we're like this. Is it possible for us, for me to hold him while he's sleeping? Is that okay? I was sure she was going to tell me, no, you have to put him down. You're going to spoil, spoil your baby. But she looked at me and she said, you know, babies need to be held. You've been holding him this whole time. And if you feel like you need to hold him, then you need to hold him. And that was the first time that I felt empowered as a mother. And it stuck with me because that is the first time I realized that my body actually knew what it's supposed to do with this baby and that all this information that I thought I had and all of this advice, it really didn't mean anything to me once this little baby was in my arms. Another contributing factor to becoming a lactation consultant is that breastfeeding was not easy for me. I planned to do it since I was a little girl and it turned out to be incredibly difficult and not intuitive at all. (laughs) So I struggled through a tongue tie and latch issues and clamping and all kinds of problems. And I realized that I wanted to be able to help other people because we have a massive gap in knowledge that would have been generational knowledge. Aunts, grandmothers, mothers would be teaching their children how to breastfeed, but my parents didn't, my mom didn't breastfeed or chest feed. So I had to learn all the way from the beginning. um, And the only help I could have was a lactation consultant at that time. So, um, definitely that was a major inspiration for me. I love that story. And I think you're making space for 
all of the parents who feel kind of scared and nervous to tell someone, oh, I want to co-sleep or I want to hold my baby. And they're kind of like bracing for the, you're going to spoil your baby, bracing for the, you know, oh, you're still feeding. Um, and you kind of get to be uh, a point of, you know, safety for all of those people. Definitely. Yeah. Um, it's just amazing how, what I, who I thought I'd be as a mom. I thought my baby will never sleep in my bed. I will breastfeed for a month. Um, you know, I'm going to let my child cry because I don't want them to be spoiled. All of that couldn't be more different than how I live today and how I parent my children. So I was going to say that sounds the exact opposite of what I know about you and your parenting style. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I will say that the lactation consultant that I saw in the hospital for those very few brief moments, um, completely changed my mind about everything I thought I knew. So I'm hoping that I can support other families, um, especially during the beginning of their journey as expanding their families, um, because it's a pivotal time. And if you don't have the support, then things can fall apart very quickly. That applies very much to feeding, like all things, but especially for feeding. And today we're going to kind of focus on pumping. So can you share what are some of the things that you see? What are the myths that you see we're getting wrong about pumping? So something I learned after becoming an IBCLC, which really surprised me, is that the flanges that come with your pump really are not made for human beings. Um, that's what we're marketing them for. Uh, and But the person who designed these, we don't really know who designed them, but we do know that back in the 1800s when the very first pump was created, the doctor who was uh, creating this pump actually met with a a dairy farmer to ask him about how they collect milk from cows. And interestingly, if you look at the hole in the flange for your pump, it's about the same size that they would use for a dairy cow. And I don't know about your anatomy, but (laughs) I very rarely see a nipple that is large enough to actually fit inside that flange. Is that like a 24 millimeter or like even bigger? Yeah, so typically pumps will come with a 24 and a 21 millimeter flange. And in school, we're taught that the nipple should never touch the inside of the collar of the flange. But um, I've learned in practice that actually we want the nipple to be gliding along the the edges of the flange comfortably. Um, And so we're not, we don't want any of the areola to go into the flange. And if you're using the stock pump parts that came with your pump, unless you happen to have an anomaly, it's unlikely that that's going to be the right size for you. So typically when you buy a pump, you're going to have to also buy some flanges that will fit your anatomy. So even from the get-go, we're already facing a barrier. Yeah, I hate to say that. I don't think that there's a lot of science backing up the design yet, but I think it's coming and there are companies that are definitely moving that way that realize that human anatomy is very, extremely variable and most human anatomy doesn't fit in the stock pump flanges. So I think it's one of the cases of We do the best that we can with the information and support that we have, but then once we know better, we do better. And so we're kind of in that growth mode now where we're realizing, hey, maybe this doesn't work. So to say that something that we've been doing for the past, you know, 20 years is suddenly wrong, that's a tough pill to swallow. But 
I, I'd like to look at it more as we can improve upon something that we've been working on for the past 20 years instead of saying, well, it's wrong. It's designed for a cow. Not necessarily. I think it's just that we have more information now. And so to fix that, would you say uh, an important part, if you're going to be using a pump is if maybe you're in the hospital or you're meeting with an LC to have them fit you for the correct flange size? Yes. It would be helpful if you see an IBCLC who knows a lot about pumps um, because there are a lot of different styles. And especially if you're seeing an IBCLC who's been doing this for a long time, you know, they probably know exactly how to make what's coming out of the box work for you. Um, but if you're wanting to try something new, then I would look for an IBCLC or maybe even a CLEC who knows how to do a proper fitment and adjustment. And it's more than just measuring anatomy. It's more about trying different products to see what works with your body. That's interesting. Okay. So any other um, myths that you're seeing or like things that we're just really getting wrong when you're seeing clients when it comes to pumping? So this isn't necessarily about pumping, but it is about bottle feeding. So typically when you pump, then you often, what I see most of my patients doing is they're bottle feeding their pumped milk or their expressed milk. That's kind of how our culture is, is here in Orange County. Everybody's pumping and they're bottle feeding. It's a convenience um, or their choice. And that's great. I think the biggest uh, myth that I hear is that babies will get a uh, nipple confusion. But actually what I see every single time is a baby who becomes preference to the flow of a bottle rather than a nipple. And so, yeah, it's not directly pumping, but they're related. Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, I hear nipple confusion, I'm going to say from 99% of clients about worrying about a pacifier or worrying about a bottle. But that is, I think that's directed, that's connected to, to pumping for sure. Um, so when should people begin pumping? So it really depends on your situation. Um, I know that right now there's a lot of products on the market for pumping uh, prenatally. That is something that could be, that could work for your body. Um, however, I do want to warn that this is something that you need to talk to your OBGYN about to make sure that you're not an at-risk pregnant person and that um, it's okay for you to go into labor because pumping or nipple stimulation um, triggers your brain to release oxytocin. And oxytocin is the chemical that is uh, used to create uterine contractions and milk ejections. So if we're trying to eject milk, we're also going to be getting the uterine contractions. So you don't want to do that until your full term. So usually we would recommend waiting until 38 weeks, but definitely you want to talk to your OBGYN first and you want to make sure that you're not at high risk. Yes, that's such a good point to not start too early. Even if you're trying to collect colostrum, don't start too, too early. And then for most people, I think that are in a hospital, they're given the option for a pump. Um, for somebody that does not have a a lot of medical interventions or um, like a, a lot of um, factors going into their birth, when should the, I guess, like, I don't want to say average, but what is a common time for them to start? So I think it's, from what I'm hearing from my clients is that a lot of um, parents are beginning to pump in the hospital. If you don't have a baby in the NICU and if you plan to, or if your goal is to feed from directly from your body full time until you go to work at a later date, I don't really think that you, there's a need to pump in the first month. Okay. So if you're planning on exclusively feeding, 
um, there's no need to pump in the first month. But if you're not, um, then you would start whenever it feels right for you. Right. I mean, it depends on a lot of different factors. So I can't say a blanket statement like nobody should pump for the first month. If you have a, a history of low milk supply or if you had infertility issues, you definitely want to be working with an IBCLC to make sure that your baby is gaining and growing appropriately and that your milk supply is being established. Um, but let's say if you don't have any of these issues, you have lots of milk, your baby is latching properly, everything is going normally, then I would say just wait until you're ready to start introducing a bottle. And I don't typically recommend introducing a bottle until the baby's a month old and that body feeding, chest feeding, breastfeeding are going well. Okay. And for people who um, they're just kind of pumping, they just want to have that uh like an extra bottle here and there after they if they, if it's a month or as long as there's no other like medical interventions um how often should they do it should they be pumping every time they feed should it be once a day what's the right amount of time it depends on how much milk you're looking for you said that for someone who just wants a bottle here and there you definitely don't want to pump after every feed you're going to be putting yourself into an oversupply issue which could lead you down the road of mastitis and that becomes a difficult issue to treat especially if you're not working with an ibclc so what i would recommend once the baby is a month old and feeding is established now we might be thinking about how to protect the parent's sleep um, and so that's often when i work with my clients to with both both parents, the birthing parent and the non-birthing parent to figure out how we can set up a schedule so that each parent can get four hours of sleep uninterrupted. Um, and the best way I think to do that is to have one of the parents bottle feed at least one session at night. So what I would recommend is choose one time during the day, every day, let's say your baby takes a three hour nap every afternoon at the same time, or you know there just happens to be a lull in your day where pumping is convenient. I would pick that time of day and then pump once every day. The key here is to make sure that you're pumping at the same time each day within an hour so that your body knows that you need that amount of milk tomorrow. So um, your milk supply, people say it's a demand, supply and demand, but it's actually a demand and supply. So if you take two ounces of milk out of your breast today at 10 a.m., your breasts tell your brain, hey, we needed two extra ounces of milk at 10 a.m. today, so we'll do that for tomorrow. So then tomorrow, if you pump, if you skip pumping, you know, you're busy, you're doing something else, your, your body makes that milk for 10 a.m. If you don't remove that milk, it sends another signal to your brain saying, oh, we didn't need that milk. Just kidding. Let's not do that. So consistency is really key here. You want to have some wiggle room, right? You can have some wiggle room of about an hour each way, but you want to make sure that if you want to have this, a consistent amount of milk to pump, that you choose a time that's convenient for you, that you can have consistency with. That's a good point. I, I like how you switch supply and demand. It is demand and supply. And I think talking about how often people should pump and when they should start it really kind of points to, in my experience, at least this idea that people have of needing a freezer stash and needing to pump every single time. And a lot of people don't realize that if they go into the issue of an oversupply, it sounds nice, but it can be difficult to experience that and that most people don't need a freezer stash. 
Right. Even when I have parents who are going back to work full time, we're really only looking at a three day supply of milk for the amount of time that they're going to be away from their baby. So most people are missing maybe five feedings while they're at work if they're working an eight hour shift. Um, and so that's really not looking like a whole freezer full of milk. You really only need, you know, maybe 60 ounces to start off. Um, and then you want to be really sure that you can pump to make up that milk supply um, while you're away from your baby. Yeah, that's a, a good point. And it is kind of this um, glorification of that, of having that freezer stash when the average person just needs a few extra bottles, a few days of bottles, maybe depending on their work situation. Yeah. Part of the issue about having, you know, pumping so much to the point of oversupply is that it's wear and tear on your body. You have to realize that just to make milk for a baby who's only being fed human milk, it take, it costs the human body 500 calories a day to provide that milk. During gestation, we're really only burning two to 300 calories. So it takes more energy to make human milk than it does to gestate your baby. Um, and so we want to, we don't want to put your body in overdrive because eventually it's going to wear you out. Yeah. That's a, a really good point. You are hurting your body by over pumping and trying to collect and make this freezer stash, it's going to maybe push you towards like some postpartum depletion or postnatal depletion, or just like being tired. Certainly. Yeah. Um, and that kind of goes into my next question. If people are exclusively pumping, we, they, people want to get a good stretch. Like you talked about maybe that three hour stretch, three hours of sleep. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it is when you have a newborn three, four five hour stretch. If you are exclusively pumping, when do you think is a good time for people to, on average, pump and get that stretch? Should they be going and pumping every single time their baby feeds or giving themselves, you know, three, four hours? Yeah. So the, the kind of the rule of thumb is you want to be emptying your breasts eight times every 24 hours, especially in the first couple months while your body is trying to figure out how much milk is needed. So when you're pregnant, your body knows that there's a baby coming. And then once the placenta detaches from the uterus, it sends a signal to the, to the brain saying, okay, the baby's here. Now make all the milk because there's no way for your body to know, did you make one baby? Did you make two? Did you make three? So those first like six weeks are pivotal in, in setting the, the pace for how much milk your body is going to need. So if you had twins, then your body says, okay, we need milk for two babies. So let's say you have one baby you and then you decide that you want to have a freezer stash. I mean, your body is going to make as much milk as you ask of it. So you want to be mindful to make sure that you're not asking too much, asking for too much milk. So you'd want to mimic your baby's feeding schedule as much as possible. Um, another thing to consider is that breast milk changes a lot throughout just the day that we hear that breast milk changes over the baby's life. And as they grow, the composition changes, but just throughout the day, it changes. Um, and so for some patients um, that I have who are exclusive pumpers and bottle feeders, I will have them have um, two different, make sure that they write down the, the time that they're pumping that milk, because in the morning, we have a really big volume of milk. It has a lot of water. It has a lot of electrolytes and sugar and carbohydrates. But at night, we have a smaller volume of milk, but it's a lot higher in fat because babies typically will cluster feed around dinner time, which is 
kind of inconvenient. But the reason they do that is because they have to work harder to move that milk. It's a lower volume, but they're packing the calories on so that they can get that four hour sleep stretch, which is really important. So if you're gonna be pumping full time, I would recommend putting the time on there. Or I had one patient who had a massive supply. She, she felt really, she felt that having that freezer stash was really important for her. Um, and so what she would do is she would have a, a container where she just poured all of her morning and daytime milk in, and then a container where she pumped in the evening and she would put that and then she could feed her baby accordingly the next day from whichever container. That's a, a good idea. I usually would do like one giant container when I was pumping for my twins. It was just like a, a jug. I, yeah, I don't yeah. think I was, I was uh, coordinated or awake enough to to remember if it was day or night <laughs> there's definitely no harm in that however in the morning when we wake up and we have lots of carbohydrates and sugars in our milk that's getting the baby ready for the day and then in the evening when we have that really high fat milk it also has um, melatonin when we get that sleep that sleepy feeling that's our brain sending a signal to our bodies through our blood system with melatonin saying okay it's time to get sleepy and that melatonin goes into your milk and goes into your baby so that your baby can kind of mimic their your circadian rhythm so that's why it's a consideration it's not necessary but if you're able to it would be a good good tactic yeah that's a good point so uh, you said earlier about how if you're over pumping um you could or just naturally your body has an oversupply, you could have engorgement. Can you explain a little bit of what that is and what that feels like and how to handle that? Okay, that is a great question. Um, so in school, <laughs> I didn't go to school that long ago, but we were still learning that if you have mastitis or a lump in your breast, that we want to work really hard to get that milk out and move it out. We have recently learned, as I mentioned earlier, science is always changing. We're learning new things. We're doing, we're trying to apply all of this new knowledge um, to, to our practice. Um, and so one of the issues with oversupply is mastitis. Um, and we used to think that that lump that you could feel in your breast was uh, a duct that was blocked and we had to squeeze that milk out. But what we've learned over the years is that um, actually the breast tissue is comprised of many little cells. So that lump you're feeling could be hundreds, thousands, potentially even millions of little milk cells that have reached their capacity. And the milk has leaked out of those cells into the space between the cells. So it's called interstitial, but it just means that milk is just kind of like around the milk cells, not in them and not in the ducts. And that's causing inflammation and that lump. So no amount of pumping or extra feeding your baby is going to move that milk. We need to treat that like we would treat any kind of inflammation, like a sprained ankle or something. We want to use ice to get that inflammation down and then figure out why, why are we having that inflammation? Typically it's caused by an oversupply issue. So we need to bring down how much milk we're making. It's kind of a sign that Either you're making more milk than your body can handle or something is changing with um, your milk removal. Either you're removing it less often or maybe you switch something up with your pump and it's not as efficient, um, but we have to pinpoint that issue. So I would use heat. So you use ice. And when would you do that? Would you do ice before? Would you do ice after? 
Yeah, good feed? question. So heat still definitely has its place. Heat is good before a feed because that kind of helps um, loosen up the milk fat that's in those cells. And that can help the milk that's in the cells move. But for pain and inflammation, we would put ice. So if you think about it, if you sprained your ankle, would you put heat on it? Probably not. You'd probably put ice on it because you want to relieve the pain and the inflammation, reduce the swelling. So that's when we want to use ice. So I would say before the feed, you can use heat. And then after feeding your baby, you want to use ice. Thank you for clarifying that. And would you recommend if someone is having engorgement, if using ice and just figuring out how they need to get the milk out more efficiently or differently, um, would that be something that they should work with an IBCLC? Or is that something that you're kind of like Googling and figuring out at home? I definitely wouldn't use Dr. Google in this scenario. <laughs> Google has a lot of really great information, but if you don't have a basic understanding of what puts you in this position in the first place, it's going to be really hard to pinpoint the issue and how to fix it. So I would definitely reach out to an IBCLC for that. I would say that too. <laughs> so for feeding, what are your favorite kind of like resources, not just pumping, but your favorite resources to share with clients or that you used? Sure. Um, okay. Something I wish every single parent knew how to do is what is called paste bottle feeding. I like to use the word slow in front of that. So slow paste bottle feeding. I think everybody should know how to do this. Um, I think using slow paste bottle feeding could save the chest feeding and breastfeeding relationship for so many dyads. Um, and it's, I don't think it's just taught enough. So that's yes. my number one hot tip is definitely figure out, learn how to do slow pace bottle feeding. That's going to save you. Um, another resource that I trust that I think is really great, has a ton, like years worth of compiled information and is safe to trust is kellymom.com. That's a really great resource. I know it's super old school. Um, <laughs> my, my patients are getting younger or I'm aging and they're staying the same age. Um, and so Kelly mom website is super old school. Everybody's using Instagram and TikTok now. Um, but kellymom.com, if you're looking for information, is this OG to do? I can trust that I can get behind that. Definitely. Okay. I like that. And I agree. Everybody should learn. I'm going to say slow pace, just like you slow pace, bottle feeding, and it would change that idea that we have of nipple confusion. If we could just change or just educate better about how we use bottles, whenever you choose to like start your bottle feeding, it would make it so much easier. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think that bottle feeding can definitely make or break your, your feeding relationship, especially if you plan to body feed. I agree. So how can people find you? You're based in Orange County, but you're having, you know, meetups and you work in person. Tell everybody how they can connect with you. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram or TikTok or even Facebook if you do that kind of a thing. And my um, handle for all of those is at All Bodies Nurture. Um, you can find my website. It's www allbodiesnurture.com uh, or you can check on Google. I'm there too. Um, I host a breastfeeding or chest feeding support group in Orange, um, graciously hosted by Verve Chiropractic. Um, and I like, I love that location and plan to keep working in that area because I feel like there's kind of a lack of birth workers in that community. So I plan to stick around that area. All right. Thank you so much for giving me your time and educating and your 
providing such, I think, a welcoming space for people who are just feeding. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here. I hope this episode made pumping seem a bit more approachable and realistic. Please share this episode with a friend or loved one and subscribe so that the Ready for Baby podcast can get in front of even more people. This is the last episode in the second season. Thank you to everyone who has supported Ready for Baby podcast and those who've shared it. I'll be back in a few months with season three.